It's great to be here. Uh, Peter sort of gave my introduction. Uh, I feel it particularly good that I made a great impression at Presbytery, which is uh, just a meeting of all pastors, uh, which is sometimes the, the hardest place to actually be your real self. And so that's great. Thanks, Peter, for inviting me and for being able to be here today. As Peter mentioned, uh, pretty much the, the key points in my bio. It is a new city that we're back in New York for the 20, it's been a 20 year break. Uh, we're at a new phase in our life as parents. Our kids are out of the house. And even though that's still part of parenting, we're realizing uh, it's a very different phase of, of life to be empty nesters. And then um, just uh, having sort of a new ministry context. All of those new things drive me to scripture with new questions. And it's been exciting over the last year that the Bible has come alive in a fresh way as these new experiences come down into my life. And so the Bible is talked about as God's word. And one of the interesting things about it is it's portrayed as living and active. And the thing about a living and active document is it's not a dry uh, document that just sits in a museum but it's a place where we actually encounter the living God. And one of the things about Scripture I've been seeing more and more is that Scripture is a place where God asks us questions. In fact, if you go through Scripture, you can almost categorize all the major phases of the life of the Bible through the questions that God asks us as human beings and the ways we respond to those questions. From the very beginning, God is asking us a question. And throughout Scripture, he keeps asking us questions. And today we come to a passage of Scripture where Jesus, who is God in the flesh, goes about that same agenda of asking us questions. And so here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks us the question, who do you say that I am? So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, we're going to read verses 27 through 33. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But then Jesus turned and looked at his disciple, and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Throughout Scripture, as I mentioned, God asks questions. And God asks questions not because he doesn't understand, not because he doesn't know, not because he can't perceive what's really going on and he needs to ask a question in order to get information. The reason God asks questions throughout Scripture is to reveal things to us that we are ignorant of. From the very beginning, uh, the first interaction God has with humans is to ask them a question after their sin. And he calls to Adam and Eve and he says, where are you? Adam, where are you? It's not because he can't see Adam. 
not because he's blind to Adam's hiding, just like you as parents of young children aren't, aren't blind to where your two-year-old is hiding when they put their bib over their head and pretend to play hide-and-seek with you. He perceives, he knows. But Adam and Eve don't know that they're hiding. They don't see what they're doing. And so God asks them a question, where are you? And here Jesus is doing exactly that same methodology with his disciples. He's probing. He's asking them a question in order to reveal from them their misunderstanding of who he is. Up until this point in Mark chapter 8, it's sort of been a grand sweep of Jesus' highlights. Jesus is healed. He has raised the dead. He has fed 5,000. It's a sort of very quick uh, description of Jesus' very active ministry. And Mark, as a writer, is provoking us as readers to say, who is this Jesus? He's so different than everybody else. He's very different than a political leader. He's very different than any other religious figure I've ever seen. He is unique, and I can't categorize him. And the same thing is happening to his disciples. His disciples, likewise, are perplexed. They can't quite fit him into the categories that they typically have for someone. They know he's amazing. They know he's unique, but they can't describe who he is. And here Jesus asks them this probing question, who do people say that I am? Uh, Jesus is a great question asker, so he doesn't get to the question he really wants to ask. He starts on the periphery of the question he wants to ask. Hey, just tell me, who do people say that I am? Now, what's interesting is the disciples give back to Jesus a very curated, a very cleaned up answer to the question of who do people say that I am? Jesus has called a lot of things uh, throughout his ministry, not all of them good. From very early on, uh, there's been a rumor that he's really an illegitimate child. And so people have this uh, slang term for Jesus that follows him his whole ministry. Uh, Others believe that he's an agent uh, of Satan. Others think he's a prophet who is teaching falsehood. And so there's lots of names out there, but the disciples clean up the list and give him the most promising names uh, because they want to they impress their teacher. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And Jesus pushes on those answers. Okay, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is probably the most essential question Jesus is going to ask his disciples. It's the heart of Mark's gospel. It's really the heart of the New Testament. This one question. It's the question not only that marks the center of the New Testament. It's the question that marks the center of the entire church over 2,000 plus years. Who is Jesus? All of our theology, all of our debates, all of the church interactions center in one way or another around this most important question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter, who is uh, one of the 12, uh, Peter oftentimes acts as the spokesperson for the disciples. He's sort of the guy the others push forward in moments when they don't want to answer the question. Peter is always up for answering the question, even when he's absolutely wrong. He doesn't mind stepping out and saying it. 
And here's that moment where Peter actually gives the right answer. You're the Christ. Uh, Other accounts of this passage um, in the other gospel writers, Jesus commends Peter and says, Peter, yes, that is the right answer. Uh, Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this answer to you. It was divinely inspired. Peter, for once, you're getting it. But then we quickly see Peter goes off off road, right? He gets the right answer, but we very quickly understand that Peter doesn't have the right understanding of the answer that he gave. He had the the fill-in-the-blank answer, but he didn't really understand the meaning because he immediately, when Jesus starts talking about what it means to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, and Jesus starts talking about suffering and death and a cross, and resurrection, Peter gets very, very uncomfortable with that. And he rebukes Jesus. <laughs> Peter is rebuking Jesus, who has just uh, fed 5,000 people, who just walked on water, who just raised the dead. What is he thinking? He's not thinking. He, like you and me, is scared, very scared very uncertain by Jesus's uh, description of what a Messiah is. For us, for Peter, for all human beings, the description of what a Messiah, a Savior, a Christ is, is someone who's going to be strong to deliver us, to restore the fortunes of our past, to bring the golden age back. Peter And Jesus and the disciples living in the first century world of Palestine, of Israel, were under the thumb of a Roman overlord that was very brutal, very harsh, very effective, very well financed. They had no hope of restoring their fortunes. And along comes Jesus, talking about the kingdom of God, talking about power from on high, talking about God revisiting his people again. And Peter's and the rest of the disciples and the 120 followers and the crowds of thousands hear that language and automatically fill into that meaning of Messiah a political deliverance. And Jesus will have nothing for that. He goes hammer and tong against Peter right here. He, he rebukes him back. He calls him Satan. <laughs> it's a pretty strong rebuke. I don't think anybody's ever called me Satan. Uh, and I've been rebuked a lot in my life, but never been called Satan. This is a pretty harsh rebuke from Jesus. He, he is very adamantly opposed to Peter's interpretation of what Messiah means. Because he wants to fill in his understanding of what Messiah means. And he begins to talk to his other disciples and say, don't tell anybody else what I just told you. And Jesus is doing this because he's challenging the notion that saving power, that deliverance is only seen in domination and conquest. He's challenging the notion that power is only seen in domination and conquest. There's a theologian uh, named Richard Bauckham who wrote a book called God Crucified. And in there he says this, The God who is sovereign over all things is no less God in Jesus' obedience and service. 
the God of transcendent majesty, is no less truly God in the abject humiliation of the cross. These are not contradictions because God is self-giving love as much in creation and rule over all things as in his incarnation and even in his death. Jesus is importantly challenging this notion that we normally have about a Messiah in order to establish the kind of Messiah he truly is. He is Messiah who is going after something far more important than restoring the fortunes politically of a people group. He is going to take down death itself. His ambition, his goal, his life, his ministry, his entire purpose from his birth has been one thing, to destroy one enemy that has faced humanity from its very beginning, and that is death. And the power of death is sin. And Jesus in his cross and by his life and by his resurrection is taking down and dismantling that enemy that has been the enemy of humanity from the very beginning. And there's nothing less than that that he wants his disciples to understand about his mission. That up until Jesus, death has always been the end of the line. That... um, outside of Jesus, death is always the end of the line. Every religion, every philosophy, every culture uh, has a lot to say about how to live this life. But almost every religion and culture ends their conversation at death. Jesus, by destroying death, empowers um, us as part of this people of God, to understand death is not the end. Death is still important. Death is still powerful. But it is no longer the destination of humanity. It has been put in its place. That Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves this victory over our greatest enemy, death itself. That Jesus' forgiveness shows that the power of death has been nullified. And so this is what Jesus is doing. This is the power and the importance of his words to his followers when he asks them, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah that defeats our oldest and fiercest foe, death itself, and by so doing gives us an entirely new approach to living our lives. Okay, Uh, Kate and I just got back from the UK, from England. I went to a conference and we stayed a couple weeks. And in that time, you're in England, you're going to visit lots of old churches, right? Uh, they're, they're everywhere. You can't turn a corner without coming across an old church in England. And one of the interesting things about churches, a friend of mine pastors a church in a, in a little town uh, <laughs> called Tiptoe, or right outside a village called Tiptoe. And in Tiptoe, England, we went and visited his church on a Sunday. And you go to the church, and to reach the sanctuary, you walk through the graveyard. You walk through a graveyard of hundreds of years of men and women and children that have been part of this parish that are buried as you walk into this church. A modern person thinks, how morbid. That's, that's gross. But people who understand Jesus is the death-defying Messiah have built into their structure of their very building a proclamation of victory that death, a graveyard, 
is not an end point. It's a passageway through. Through death, we worship. Through our resurrection, our belief in this resurrection, we know that those who have died in Christ are not dead. They will rise and worship with us as a great cloud of witnesses around the throne. That even in the simple act of going to church, we are walking through and reminding ourselves that we believe in a death-defying victor, a Messiah named Jesus. Now, I know you guys have a new building, and it's probably not possible, according to zoning codes in New Jersey, to put a, a, a graveyard in front of your church. I, I, everybody's laughing. That's a joke. Uh, but the truth remains. Even in the architecture of our worshiping sites, are we reminding ourselves that we worship and serve a death-defying Messiah? How can we begin to build that into our lives? A lot of us are coming from different places. A lot of us have different uh, spiritual journeys. A lot of us have different backgrounds in the faith. Uh, Some of us are questioning Christianity. Some of us are new to faith. Some of us have been believers for a very long time. How do we begin to build into our lives an understanding of Jesus as this kind of Messiah? Jesus is a death-defying Messiah, but he um, most often delivers us through, not from the things we fear. Jesus most often delivers us through and not from the things we fear. Look at Peter. Peter here had the right answer, then the wrong answer. The right answer and the wrong reason. Later in his life, Jesus, Peter is deathly afraid of pain, and he very much wants the approval of others. That's the motivation driving him in his life with Jesus. But it takes Jesus' death and then Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' restoration of Peter to transform him into the man we know as the leader and the rock. It took Peter having to go through that and Jesus actually going to Peter as the resurrected Jesus and saying to him, Peter, feed my sheep three times before Peter finally gets that Jesus truly has overcome the grave and truly has forgiven him for his betrayal. That he can then be broken enough to receive God's grace and mercy. You and I have situations that we need deliverance from. There are situations that you and I are crying out for deliverance. Some of us are in very difficult marriages that we're crying out for a change. Some of us are in work that is incredibly unfulfilling. Some of us have debilitating health issues. Some of us have financial constraints that are killing us. Some of us have family tensions that are causing no end of sleepless nights. For all of us, uh, we cry out for the Lord to deliver us. And when we say deliver us, we often mean take us out in this situation. Sometimes God answers that prayer, and he does deliver us miraculously. But more often than not, when we pray, God, deliver us, the answer God gives us is, I'm going to join you in this problem. Uh, (laughs) uh, Peter introduced me this morning, and 
he said, I planted the church in Salt Lake. And I, I had to correct him and say, no, I didn't plant the church. I went to this church that had struggled. I went to a church that was about three years old that the pastor who had planted that church in Salt Lake had a moral failure with somebody in the congregation. And it decimated uh, this young congregation of 20-somethings. It fulfilled all their, all their, um, all of their um, things they thought the worst about the church. You can't trust a pastor. You can't trust leadership. Institutional church is always going to mess up. And so I moved into this church and entered into the three worst years of my life of dealing with people that were very broken and hurt, people that needed a pastor and yet were very hurt by pastoral influence in their life. I was young and green and didn't know how to deal with people. I got frustrated. They got frustrated. There was lots of tension. It was three of the worst years of my life. And I often prayed, Lord, take us out. You know what? God faithfully answered that prayer by keeping us there 16 years. <laughs> he said, my deliverance isn't by taking you out. My deliverance is going to be through. That through staying, he began to work a change, not only in my folks, but me. I, I remember calling a friend of mine back here in New York and saying, this terrible thing had just happened. I'm like, Tom, what do I do? And Tom said, keep your eye on the ball. Tom's a Brooklynite uh, that says things very straight. And I'm like, what do you mean, keep my eye on the ball? He's like, do you pray? I'm like, yes, I'm praying. He's like, keep at it. <laughs> do you love these people? I'm like, no, I don't love these people. <laughs> He's all like, Jesus loves these people, and you're their pastor, so you better start loving these people. So slowly and steadily, through that time, God began to work to bring life into something that felt like death. Here's the thing about Jesus. Here's why he is so adamant about his call to be a Messiah that is this kind of Messiah. He loves to bring dead things to life. He loves resurrection. In fact, resurrection is the only way he operates. Sometimes uh, we keep things alive far too long, and Jesus wants to kill them so he can bring them to life. You and I have things going on in our life, and more often than not, God is calling us to stay put and for allow us to allow his power to begin to work in those situations. How do we do that? very simple. Jesus says all you need is faith as small as a mustard seed, which means he just needs a crack, a little crack in a sidewalk, a little crack in our heart, a little crack in our time, a little crack in our day, and his roots, his power, his seed, his message, his truth can begin to penetrate and break apart those things that feel like rocks and hard cement in our soul. How do we give a crack an opening for Jesus to begin to work. I can confidently say almost all of you, if you're old, over the age of three, shower every day. A shower is a great time, a little crack in the window of your life to give to God 
to begin to ask this question, Jesus, who do I say you are? Who do I really say you are? What do I really think about you? Let me just, some of us are afraid to tell God what we really think of him because we're afraid of his displeasure. We're afraid of his disapproval. We're afraid that he can't take it. Everything we just sang this morning says God is a God who can take it. He is great and powerful so that we can say anything to him. If we hurt by him, you can say that to him. Do you think he's left you and abandoned you? Have you ever read the Psalms? Oh, my Lord. David is so honest with Jesus in the Psalms. You can be honest. Maybe it's the shower time. Maybe it's that morning cup of coffee. Maybe it's your morning commute. But find a place that can begin to crack open some time for you to sit with Jesus and ask and answer that question, who do you say that I am? The other thing that's vitally important in this allowing God to begin to work in our lives is coming together. One of the interesting things that Jesus says here is that um, he tells the disciples to be silent when he's just told them the most important thing that he's ever taught, right? Like, Jesus, come on. You just told me the most important thing about you, and then you tell me to be quiet. Why do you tell his disciples to be quiet? Because the disciples couldn't preach the real Messiah until they knew the life-giving power of that real Messiah. You and I can't really believe and talk about Jesus and his death-defying ways until we understand them ourselves, until we share these stories about how God worked in the very little details of our lives to change something that we thought was death into something that felt like life. We do that by sharing the stories in small groups, men's groups, women's groups, all kinds of ways that we begin to share and encourage each other with the fact that we really do have a God. We really do have a Messiah who brings dead things to life. And we openly share those stories and we are encouraging each other with those stories and we laugh about those stories and we celebrate those stories because by doing those things, God is beginning to break open our lives. He's beginning to empower us to be not just people who know what's true and have the right answer, but people who have both the correct answer but also the right rationale behind it. The reason this is working, the reason I am able to stay in this is because I believe and I see the evidence of a death-defying Messiah in my life day by day. And when I don't feel it, I see it in Peter, or I see it in Kate, or I see it in someone else, and I'm encouraged. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah who defeats death, who destroys the power of sin, who rises from the dead three days later to ascend to heaven to the right hand of the throne of God Almighty, who beseeches God daily on your behalf, who prays for you, who loves you, who sends his spirit of power amongst us in order to live this life as his people in this world. That's who Jesus is. That's who you can trust. That's who is our Messiah. Let's pray. Father, you are good.
and you have been good to us in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that as we stay put in the area of lives that you call us to, that we would see your power made manifest in us. In Christ's name, amen.